Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome author and Money Week writer Dominic Frisbee. Welcome to the show, Dominic. Thanks very much, Aidan. A pleasure, pleasure to be talking to you. It's great to have you on the show, and I've just finished the brilliant Bitcoin written by your, your good self. What I loved about the way you wrote it is jargon-free. You've actually gone and got your hands dirty and got into this world. You know, stepping back and it's kind of going, this would make an awesome screenplay because uh. the, the story you tell it drags you in and it, it reminds me of a less sordid version of eight millimeter. Yeah. Well, that, thanks very much for that tip. And I, I'll look out for that because I've been trying to write a, I can't, I can't even decide if it's a f- sort of sci-fi or a fantasy or a thriller, but something to do with money. And I was trying to, I was thinking about that while I was writing this Bitcoin book, because you know, the story of money, it, it, money is the ultimate power. And the person who has that power, which is currently lies with the state, but it wasn't always that way. It used to be gold and silver were money and, you know, the state couldn't print gold and silver. But but whoever has power over money has ultimate power. And so I think as a basis for I don't know if it's a political thriller or a sci fi fantasy, but something. But it's there's something there waiting to happen. For sure, man. I, I actually think you have the bones of it there. I'll actually flick it on. I have that screenplay. I'll flick it on and hopefully it can lead to some magic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you said it there. I mean, one of the things that I suppose I've asked people when I ask them about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or blockchain, most people don't know what it is. But that's because it's kind of made a little bit cryptic and you've demystified it. But there's a bigger thing behind this and people don't understand how can somebody just make money like this and you say in the book the saying they're printing money is actually true and i thought that'd be a good way to start to to give people a bit of context well bitcoin was invented in 2008 but the the kind of culture of bitcoin was born many many years before and there was a kind of i want to there was a sort of group of libertarian techies computer coders called the cypherpunks who were operating in kind of the 1990s and their kind of goal was they saw the rise of the internet and they saw the the immense power that it um that it represented and they were really concerned about people's privacy and so they developed the uh, skill of cryptography. And now, as soon as you say the word cryptography, people want to go, people kind of go, well, what's cryptography? And cryptography is the art. If, if I want to send you a message, Aiden, but I only want you to be able to read that message, I don't want anyone else to be able to read it, then um, the art or the science of me sending a message to you that nobody else can read. That is the art of, of encoding that message so that only you and I have the keys. That is the art of cryptography. And part of the way, and there was all sorts of people involved in this m- movement, really kind of renegade. Julian Assange sort of came to it a bit later on before he started WikiLeaks. You know, serious players who don't like the world um, operating as it currently operates and they're determined to effect change. But they're not 
going to affect Peter Thiel. There's another one, PayPal. Um, and he wrote an essay about this. You cannot affect political change by campaigning and lobbying on and going on marches and all that thing. You have to force it through new technology. That was one of their beliefs. This is, this is And so the ultimate goal of these um, cypherpunks was to create a new system of money that was independent of banks and governments. And if you think about, you know, as we just said, money is the ultimate power. The implications of a new technology, of a new money, independent of, of, of banks and governments, is, is enormous. And they also wanted nobody to be in charge of this system of money. It had to be, you know, open source, anarchic, and all sorts of alternative digital currencies got invented. But in order to process the payment, in order for somebody to ratify that, a was paying this money to B. It needed some kind of central body to process the transaction. And as soon as you had a central body, there was somebody in charge of it. And so the goal was 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 not reached. And the problem is this. If I'm standing next to you, Aiden, in a room or in a shop and I want to pay you some cash, I can pay that cash directly from me to you. And it involves no middleman. And they wanted to replicate this, this, that, that cash transaction online. But every payment system online involves going through PayPal or a credit card. And even these new independent systems of digital cash involved that middleman. And there was no, there was, and, and if I'm to send you a piece of computer code, if I send you an email or a, or a video uh, or a picture or anything, you can copy and paste that email or that video or that picture. And you can send it out to 10 or a million or a hundred million different people if you want. And if you can copy and paste money, so I send you one piece of code and then you copy and paste that code to a million other people, the money instantly loses its value. And it was known as the problem of double spending. It stumped computer coders for about 20 or 30 years. They couldn't solve it to the point at which it was deemed unsolvable. And so there was this kind of anarchic subculture called the, the cypherpunks, and they were trying to solve this problem, invent this system of money. And then suddenly in 2008, you know, we had the financial crisis and the reaction of the financial crisis was all the central banks suddenly created this money out of thin air through the process of quantitative easing. And we're still living through the consequences of quantitative easing today because all that new money that they created went, it basically made its way to the rich. The assets of the rich just got more and more expensive. And, you know, ordinary people like you and me never saw it. And it, it exacerbated inequality. I don't think they quite realized what they were doing at the time. But many people were extremely angry by the reaction uh, of central bankers. And in early 2009, suddenly along came Satoshi Nakamoto and he, he announced his new invention, Bitcoin, on a mailing list for cryptographers, for basically for cypherpunks. And suddenly he had, he had this, you know, everyone started to realize the he'd cracked the problem of double spending. And what ensued over the next, you know, five or 10 years, or well, not even 10 years, five or eight years, was it just caught a nerve with all sorts of different people. Now, the first people who got into Bitcoin were, the com were computer coders, techies, geeks, because they were like, wow, 
he solved this problem of double spending. And this is a new technology and it has all sorts of uh, potential future implications. So the coders were the first people to get excited about it. Then all sorts of people, you know, libertarians, economists, um, anarchists, all people uh, who were aware of they got excited about it because here was a new system of money that worked and it didn't involve governments or banks. So those kind of people got excited. Then suddenly um, black market people got excited because here was a way of buying and selling goods. And the, the, the reason that black markets hitherto had never been able to thrive online was there was it was it was that because people couldn't send each other cash. Payments were traceable. And so there was a lot of risk to trading illegal goods online. But here was a new system where you could keep your identity secret. And so suddenly black markets thrive. So criminals liked it. Uh, and and in fact, one of the ironies is, is Bitcoin has done to the drugs trade, to the illegal drugs trade, uh, what the Internet did to music and publishing is <laughs> completely disrupted it. And uh, suddenly, you know, previous, you know, drug lords and barons who had their little niches have been completely undermined by by this new system of money. And who else got excited by it? Speculators. Here was this new asset class in which you could speculate in and it was rising and falling and it was volatile. So speculators got involved in it. All sorts of new businesses sprung up as a result of this new system in, of money. So entrepreneurs liked it. So it just appealed to so many different groups of people for so many different reasons. And that's why it's just grown and grown and grown. And and that I've, I've, I've rambled on. But that basically is, is the story of Bitcoin, which brings us sort of to the present day where now it's not quite in the mainstream, but it's getting there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'd love to tell the audience the story of the island of Yap and rice stones, because that for me was the best analogy I've ever heard of how this works and how there's record keeping. And yes, that was people, as in that was, a, you know, everybody knowing that X stone belongs to X person. But it's a perfect analogy for how the blockchain works and how actually there's records kept. Would you mind elaborating a bit on that story? Sure. Um, I, I'd be glad to. And it's a, it's a wonderful little story in the evolution of money. Now, you know, we think that what we're taught about the history of money is we're taught that, you know, we first we use shells and whale's teeth and and salt and all these things. Salt, by the way, is Roman soldiers who were sometimes paid in salt. That's where we get the word salary. Um, you know, and, we, and then we use gold and silver and copper and nickel. And then we started using paper. And that's the, the kind of history of money that we're taught. And the there's a tiny tropical island called Yap in the eastern Pacific. And they evolved their own. Um, system of money. And many hundreds of years ago, there were voyagers who went out and they went to a nearby island about 300 miles from where they were. And they found these kind of bits of sparkly limestone rock, a bit like marble. And it sparkled in the sun and they thought it was absolutely beautiful. And they brought it back to the, to the island of Yap. And this kind of rock was a, was a big hit. So people kept going and they used it as jewelry and to decorate themselves. And gradually, people kept going back to this to this uh, um, island and bringing back more and more of this rock. And they would kind of carve it into a donut shape and then carry the rock on on sticks. And so, you know, you needed several people to carry the rocks were often so big that you needed several people to carry the stick. And and they brought more and more of this rock back. And obviously it was it's not like 
gold and silver where I can pay you a bit of gold and then that gold's yours or I can pay you a, a coin and I hand the coin to you and that coin's yours. These enormous bits of rock were too big to hand from one person to the other. So they would deposit these, these enormous pieces of rock in locations around the village. And so, you know, they'd put the rock outside, you know, Steve's house. And then everyone in the village would know that that rock belonged to Steve. But say at a certain point, you know, Steve was marrying his daughter off to Gary or Steve was <laughs> buying something off Wayne or whatever it was, then everyone would know that 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 Steve's daughter's dowry was that rock and that Gary now owned the rock. So even though the rock was in the village and it never changed position, everyone knew it was recorded in everyone's memory. Everyone in the village knew who the rock belonged to. So so ownership, so that, that it was like a central asset, but then ownership of that asset would change hands and everyone in the village remembered would just know because that's how before we had pen and paper, that's, you know, stuff was transferred through memory and, and, and orally. Everyone would just know who that rock belonged to. And Bitcoin kind of weirdly operates on the same system in that there's a huge database at the center of it all called blockchain, called the blockchain. And, and that blockchain is an enormous system of memory. And every transaction that's ever taken place uh, with a Bitcoin, no matter how big or small, is recorded on the blockchain. And But in that blockchain, it is also recorded who owns the coins. So you never actually receive the coins. It is just the ownership of the coins is recorded on this database. And so it's it's kind of, this modern system of money has got its roots in the most primitive system of money. And yeah. it's, it's rather a nice little story. It's a lovely story, and, and it really does bring it to life. And then the other one I thought, keeping to the primitive idea, was the idea of mining. Because, again, this came from the idea of mining for gold. Could you elaborate on that? Because I think that side-by-side side with, with the app story really nail it home for people. Sure. Well, the blockchain, which is the technology at the center of Bitcoin, I've, I've already said it's like a huge database. And every time a new transaction takes place, uh, it has to be confirmed and recorded in the blockchain. And until that that um, confirmation is recorded, uh, it hasn't taken place. But once it has taken place, it is permanent and that record cannot be changed. And so the blockchain and every minute new transaction records are added to this to this blockchain and it is basically the most enormous system of public record ever invented and it it, it is and it and it constantly grows and everyone knows how this how the system works that the code is transparent for everyone to see but how on earth can a system of this size a memory of this size be maintained um, it involves an enormous amount of computer processing power. And the way it's maintained is that computers all around the world, thousands of different computers, it's probably even hundreds of thousands now, all download, effectively download the Bitcoin app onto their computer and people run the Bitcoin app. And in running the Bitcoin app, the blockchain is maintained. Um, the records are processed and they're agreed by all the different computers on the network. Now, downloading that that app involves a lot of electricity. It involves a lot of computer processing power. Why would anyone? Why would anyone do that? 
Um, well, so inherent in the, in the design is that in exchange for running this app, you are paid in Bitcoins. So you, people actually run the app out of their own self-interest because they want to be paid in Bitcoins. And this is the process of mining. It's called Bitcoin mining. And so in in it's it's very kind of Ayn Randian, but in acting in your own self-interest, which is the receipt, you know, mining for new coins, receiving new coins, you are actually maintaining the database for the greater public good. And it's um, Adam Smith uh, said, uh, you know, people are in acting for their own self-interest. They do good for the greater public. That's a, a dynamic that Adam Smith described as the invisible hand. Um, and so, yes. And, and so that's effectively how it worked. Now, the guy who designed it, Satoshi Nakamoto, was a gold bug. And so he tried to replicate the process of this idea of gold mining. So in mining for gold and taking the risks of exploring for gold and all the power that you use in, in, in mining for gold and all the capital that you risk for in building a mine, the reward is the, the actual gold that you receive uh, uh, assuming that you operate that mine well. And, and, and Bitcoin mining is a replication of that. Yeah, it's, I love the way, you know, and you described this so well, Satoshi, he did this like he thought about an architecture of how this would work and we might go into a while about you know your theories of who he is and i know i won't give it away i think you, people should read the book but getting to that problem you've painted the picture for us there was, there's a huge power in who prints the cash or who holds the the cash and what he did was he recognized that by decentralizing it and actually Losing trust in the trusted party, which was the banks, and then the 2008 happened, that broke the system once and for all, even though a lot of people were crying that it's broken anyway. But that was the final straw for somebody like him. And this is a signal. And it always happens in this way where it's a small, starts off with a small group, then it gains more and more momentum. And I think we're hearing so much noise today because it's actually having a bigger impact. It was definitely, it was very political and it was born as a reaction to the uh, financial financial crisis. That was like the, the final straw that broke the camel's back. You know, so many people are angry uh, with the way that the world is currently run. And bit, here was a way that change can be affected. And the authorities are asleep on this. They do not realize, you know, it's going to be, they're going to try and clamp down on it when it's too late. The horse has bolted. And I don't think Bitcoin is going to replace the US dollar or the pound or anything like that, but it's going to coexist and um, it's just going to eventually prove itself to be a, a better system of money. And the reason it's going to be proved to prove itself to be a better system of money is let's say you were hired for a job, Aiden, and I offered to pay you a euro or I offered to pay you a euro's worth of Bitcoin. To do, or say, let's say 100 euros for, for 100 euros, you can have 100 euros or 100 euros worth of Bitcoin. Now, that 100 euros that you get, what you can buy today with that 100 euros is more than what you will be able to buy next year. And in three years' time, the 100 euros will probably only buy you $90 worth of what it would buy you today because just the price of everything goes up houses, food, whatever it is. But on the other hand, the Bitcoin, if you look at a Bitcoin, if you'd been paid 100 euros worth of Bitcoin five years ago, well, that's like more than 10 grand today. 
So what would you rather be paid in a money that actually increases in value or a money that loses its value? And the answer is everyone would prefer the money that increases in value. And so more and more people are going to be want to be paid in Bitcoin to sell their goods in Bitcoin. And you will have what's called the network effect. You're already seeing it. And 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 you know the herd has already become a stampede but the stampede will just get bigger and bigger and bigger yeah and 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 therefore we're seeing you know like the reactions in china we're seeing like reaction where it's like if any of our traders are caught trading Bitcoin, jp morgan jp yeah. morgan that guy sort of got a point i mean everyone jumped on his back and said uh, um jamie diamond you know he said uh you know the if it gets too big the u.s authorities will close it down well they can't you know, there's so many criticisms you hear of Bitcoin come from people who don't fully understand what they're saying. And the inventors and the technology, they're so far ahead of the curve. They've already thought of that. Now, sure, a Bitcoin exchange can be shut down or it can be, be made illegal to have Bitcoins. But how on earth can you police it? You cannot. Mm. A I war mean, on Bitcoins would be even more futile than the war on drugs has been. Yeah. You've seen these people who have been made millionaires overnight, you've participated in the parties. If well, we go- unfortunately, I'm not one of them because I had a low, but they got nicked way back when, you know, um, that's another thing that Bitcoin does is it forces you to improve your own discipline and your own habits. And I was a bit lazy early on and, and uh, you know, I, I had my email hacked. Somebody got wind of the fact that I had some Bitcoins and I got my email hacked and there was an archived wallet in there. I didn't realize it. And I had my Bitcoin stolen. So, you know, more for me i mean i love the whole thing but i I should be a multi-trillionaire now and i'm not (laughs) wow did you have that much yeah well you know you did you really didn't need to have that much yeah you know i i I did a somebody in um in uh london is selling a, a this russian dude is selling his house in notting hill for 18 million pounds which is you know 22 million euros or something like that and he's only accepting bitcoin wow and this is a big news story in the UK this week. So I went round to his house this week and it's, you know, it's a nice house. It's a big house in Notting Hill, but it's not that nice. And anyway, 18 million pounds. Now I looked in my archived emails to see the first time I ever got wind of Bitcoin. And it was in December, 2010. It was mentioned at the end of a newsletter that I, you know, but it's one of those emails you get, you, you just flick through it. And I think I must've flicked through it and thought, oh, that looks good and not really looked into it anymore. But Bitcoin at the time was 22 cents. Now, if I'd bought, if I'd bought a thousand dollars of Bitcoin, that would have been roughly 5,000 Bitcoins. But just for the sake of this, uh, let's say I bought a thousand and fifty dollars worth of Bitcoins, because that would be five and a half thousand Bitcoins. So I spent just over a thousand dollars. The price that the guy who's selling that 18 million pound house is asking is five and a half thousand bitcoins. So for a one thousand dollar investment in 2010, at the end of 2010, I could be buying an 18 million pound house. I mean, it's extraordinary. We'll never, ever see another investment opportunity like this in our lifetimes. And I'm afraid, you know, it might still be an opportunity now, but it's not the opportunity it once was. This will story break your heart. There's a guy I knew who got into mining Bitcoins very, very early on, clever techie guy. Uh, he was in living in London at the time, now lives in Perth. And he used to leave his, his laptop, his office laptop running 
mining coins overnight while the office was closed and then come back in the morning and collect the coins. And he did this over a period and he built up a huge stash of coins. And when he left um, that company, the company took the comp- the laptop back and wiped the hard drive. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's millions and millions of pounds worth of or euros or dollars, whatever currency you want to use, but of Bitcoins just, just wiped. Yeah, and you, you mentioned a good few stories of this in the in the book, and people who yeah. know, who who traded for a beer and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, you've been... there's a guy who bought the first Bitcoin transaction was was ten thousand bitcoins for two pizzas. That's fifty million dollars today. Yeah. Fifty million dollars for two pizzas. And you, you you've <laughs> been part of the, to those those kind of Playboy Mansion type parties that uh, some of these guys have had. Like I used, I was into mining before gold and all this and you, the mining lunches are notorious when people, when mining companies are trying, trying to raise money, they take you to the most lavish lunches and, you know, really lubricate you before they try and sting <laughs> you for a huge check. And I've been to some properly lavish dinners and lunches, but this Bitcoin dinner that I went to, like, you know, 500 pound bottles of wine, one after the other. I mean, it was amazing. And one of them, everyone who went to the dinner had their Bitcoins nicked. Oh my God. And it was a Bitcoin dinner and some hacker had heard that there was this Bitcoin dinner and he, and including me and, and I don't know how he did it, but he got in everyone who was at that dinner. And there were some big players in the Bitcoin scene, I can tell you. And some of them, I don't think some of them will admit to having, having had their coins nicked, but anyway. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, uh, but, but the funny thing is the code, uh, that, that Nakamoto did, is actually rock solid, isn't it? I mean, that was one yeah, of the big there's things. There's a difference between having your Bitcoins stolen and hacked, but the actual blockchain itself uh, is unhackable. Yeah. Loads of people have tried to crack it and they can't. They've had like the top guy from, I can't remember his name, Dan Kaminsky or something. He's the top guy, the top American hacker. He's like cracked everything and he can't do it. He's just I, said it's the strongest code he's ever come across. That's ph- phenomenal. And, and when you think of the architecture and then the coding, and I know, and I know... You know, you, you say that, that there's been way more than one person involved in, in developing this and, uh, you know, a lot of contributors. But it'd be great to just take a little uh, segue for a second, which is, so people will have heard now that, you know, it's probably a little bit late to get in on Bitcoin, you know, or it's expensive, certainly, to get in now. But the one thing that a lot of people have asked me is, you know, how are all these new coin offerings, what are they and what? What, what do they look like sitting beside Bitcoin? And on the uh, I, I have to say, I haven't actually done one yet, and I, I'm not sure I entirely get them, but this friend of mine is leaning on me to do one, uh, which closes next week, so I'm, I'm looking at it now. Um, so let me answer that question for you next week. I mean, they I'm not sure I entirely understand them, but just because I don't understand them doesn't mean they're a total yeah. um, racket. I'm sure there's there's loads of people. It's a bit like, you know, uh, it's a new technology. It's a bit like dot com in the nineties or railways in the eighteen thirties or the eighteen seventies. It's a new technology. Everyone's throwing money money at it. They're you know laying railways and laying cables and doing all sorts of stuff, and and most of it will just go up the swanee. Um, but you know that's what happens with new technology. It's experimental, and uh, so you know some of it will work and some of it won't. Right. Okay. So it's it's just people trying different things, and hopefully, the, it's like startups essentially. It's yeah, it's startup mania. I bet you the hit rate 
like you look at all the crowdfunding sites, their hit rate's pretty low. It's, you know, it's, I think it's 90% of the businesses don't make money. It'll be the same with ICOs or any kind of venture capital. Most, the reality is most businesses don't make money. Right. Uh, so, so then, to, to sorry, most startups don't. Most, most start exactly, yeah, and most fail. You know, when you look at other uses, because you mentioned the blockchain and how it works and how it keeps this public record, there's lots of other uses for that as well, other than just currency. Yeah, loads. Let me ask you a question. Of the plethora of religions that were around in the Middle East, you know, 3,000 years before Christ in, in ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia and all that, of all those religions that were around, why did Judaism survive and none of the others? They wrote it down. They were the only ones who kept a record. You know, Ten Commandments and all that inscribed in stone. Why did Christianity supersede all the pagan religions in Northern Europe in the Dark Ages? For exactly the same re reason. Christians wrote it down. Uh, the um, pagan religions were all passed on orally. You cannot underestimate the impact of record keeping on the course of history. And here is this blockchain, this new system of record. And it's not just financial transactions that you can use the technology to record. You can record ownership. And so once you can record who owns what, you can then record the, you can then use the technology to trade ownership. So you'll see the technology used to trade financial assets, stocks, shares, bonds, but even things like cars and houses. Um, a couple of nations have already starting to record land registry on a blockchain. And once you have the trading of ownership, it's a small step from there to contract law and the automation of contracts. So you'll see contracts executed, you know, drawn up by computer coders rather than by lawyers. And the execution of that contract will start to take place automatically. So it's going to have implications for the legal system and lawyers. Um, things like if I am Louis Vuitton and I make a new bag, I can record that this bag was made at, on this date with this serial number. I can record it on the blockchain. And thus, you know whether you are buying a genuine Louis Vuitton bag or a fake. So you're going to see it used in authentication and notarization, the authentication of goods, of diamonds, of documents, and even the authentication of you. It's a wonderful way of, of proving who you are. At the moment, to prove our identity, we use a username and passwords. That's the system that operates on the net. But it's actually a rather clunky system, and it's easy to hack. And people are really lax with their password management and all this stuff. Well, we're going to see blockchain technology used in authentication of you. And then we also see it would also be used in voting systems. It's once, um, you know, if you think how, what a big deal it is to arrange a, a referendum or a vote, it costs the government a great deal of money. And, um, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty easy to fraud, vote fraudulently if you really want to. Um, block, block with blockchain technology, the technology will soon be there whereby you can vote on anything. Uh, and for a fraction of the cost, with 10 times the level security from your mobile phone. And people are getting more and more politically engaged at the moment, particularly, you know, with Twitter and, and, and on Facebook and with social media and all that. And, you know, they're demanding more of a say in political decisions. And the technology will now be there for them to vote 
on political decisions. And once the technology's there, there for them to vote, people would demand a vote. And so we're going to move. Currently, we operate on a system of representative democracy. Well, we're going to see and politicians will resist it. But but ultimately, you know, they try to resist the, the Brexit vote. But ultimately, the people voted for it. So you're going to see um, transition from uh, representative democracy to a more direct democracy. And, and the blockchain is going to be um, fundamental to that transition. Yeah. You know, this word comes up the whole time and I, I actually just pulled a definition of it. So disintermediation, right? And the, the disintermediation. Yeah. yeah. So, and I know this is key to it and I'm just going to give the definition from the dictionary. So a reduction in the use of intermediaries between producers and consumers, for example, by investing directly in securities market rather than through a bank. That's a huge word for this, isn't it? That's a huge collapse of this where actually the intermediary is now under threat this trusted party in the middle is no longer required in a lot of cases it is the most enormous force of disruption and disintermediarization to use the buzzword what a terrible word yeah but you're absolutely right so you're going to see i mean i've just described how politicians will be disintermediated by the technology and they will become administrators of the people's will you know, at the moment, let's say your MP is 20,000 people in your your local seat, 9,999 vote for the Labour Party and 10,001 vote for the Conservative Party. And so there's a Conservative MP who represents the will of the people in that area. Well, 9,999 people have got uh, views go on un unrepresented. And in fact, in the case of the Brexit vote, you know, the majority of British people voted for it and there was something like 75% of MPs voted against it. So there's often a very different, you know, politicians often represent a very different attitude to what to what the, to the people they're supposed to represent well they're, they're they're one group that will be disintermediated by this lawyers as i've just described are going to be disintermediated by it financial institutions banks we no longer need a payment processor to process our payment i can send money directly from me to you banks will be disintermediated um notarizers uh it, it's it's uh it's enormous i mean the the, the implications are enormous you know, banks and politicians are the two <laughs> most powerful groups, effectively, and 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 their their models are 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 threatened by this, and they cannot see it coming. They are asleep at the wheel. Yeah. But technology is a bit like you know, you can't stop the printing press once it's been discovered. It's it's a it's an unstoppable force. Yeah, and but it's, I just always think it's it's a it's the zeitgeist. It's this. It's a signal of something bigger, which is this almost uprise against capitalism and people's people's desires have changed massively in the world and this is just a signal of what's coming my line i'm most proud of in the book the revolution will not be televised it will be cryptographically time stamped on the blockchain <laughs> that's brilliant I, actually do you know there's another one you, you say in the book and i'd never seen it before and it's ulbrich's quote yeah paul ross albrecht yeah, yeah. He says the only way to change the government is by changing the governed. I love yeah. that quote, man. That is a, an awesome line. It's a very, very similar one. But let, let, I'd forgotten that one actually. Oh, it's, an it's, awesome it's better one. than mine. But no, than it's, mine. It's, 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 yours is, is probably a little bit more techy. But will you know? And you say this as well. The language of all this Bitcoin and and you know the blockchain etc. is a bit foreign to people right now. But it, that was like the at sign in the nineties. You know. This yeah, stuff will exactly. all become common uh, parlance. But 
could we talk a little bit about Silk Road? Because I, I thought this is where you saw, you know, disintermediarization in, in practice in that you didn't need this person in the middle anymore. You need, and it's, when you think of the other forces that play the gig economy, you know, in, in, you know, coming alongside this, and then you have a way of actually paying people without having this, this party in the middle, having to, you know, and taking a little cut all the time. There's huge disruption coming around the line. And we saw that in the drug dealing world in particular with the Silk Road. Yeah, well, the Silk Road was like the first online drug marketplace. And it was basically followed exactly the same principle as Amazon or eBay. Uh, it put buyers and sellers together and they traded. It was an online marketplace. And, um, you know, sellers advertised their goods and buyers bought the goods and then the sellers would send the goods and the buyers would send the bitcoins and the marketplace would hold the bitcoins until the buyer confirmed he'd received the goods and then the uh, bitcoins would be sent to the seller. And the whole thing thrived on quite simply on the review system. Good buyers and sellers got good reviews and bad buyers and sellers got bad reviews. And so the more good reviews you had, the more trade you got. And it was wonderfully simple and Bitcoin made the whole thing possible. And after about a year and a half trying to crack it, the FBI eventually got him down, got him. And the guy behind it was Ross Ulbricht. And rather comically, he was the guy who ran the whole side and he described himself as the Dread Pirate Roberts, reference to the um, to the film The Princess, Princess Bride. And uh, he eventually got busted. And within a week of the Silk Road closing down, there were 20 copycat sites. <laughs> And so, I mean, now there are hundreds every six months or so, one of the sites gets busted and then there's, but there's a load of new ones spring up and the online black market is now thriving. It is yeah. huge. But, but it's key. I, the Dread Pirate Roberts, firstly, I'm a nerd who knew who he was. <laughs> I yeah. love that movie. But, uh, the, the key part of that, and it reminds me of even Saw, you know, the movie Saw that's, you know, and it's this, it's about, it's about, it's not about the person, it's about the position and it's about the mindset. And, you know, that that idea of the Dread Pirate Roberts is it doesn't matter who it actually is. It's what they stand for. Exactly. And that's why we're seeing all these copycats, because, again, it's a sign of this signal that people want change. There is change in the air. It's not coming. It's happening. Yeah. What do you see coming in the future? What do you see for banks, politicians? What do you see for, you know, lawyers? Like there's massive disruption coming to these people. But yet again. The governments aren't doing anything about it because they don't understand it. But either are those professions. Yeah, well, some of the banks are, to be fair. They've all got little blockchain arms and they're investing money in it and, and investigating the technology. But but it'll never be the same as a, you know, a guy, you know, a guy getting his hands dirty at the coalface. Um, the, there are all sorts of trends coursing through the world at the moment. And Bitcoin and, and uh um, you know, new financial technology is a big one, but it's just one of many. You know, there's an appetite for change. There's a sort of psychological demand for change. And so you're seeing that manifested in the rise of more extreme alternative politics, whether it's on the left or the right. Um, you know, the Brexit vote showed how people want something different. They no longer want to be ruled by, you know, unaccountable bureaucrats. Um, the one trend that few people talk about is just the sheer size of debt 
which governments owe, unpayable debt. And the only way they're going to get around this system of, of the unpayable amount of money they owe is by suppressing interest rates, financial repression, as they call it, and devaluing money. Well, the more they do that, the more inequality will will uh, occur and the more angry that people will get. And eventually, if they lose control of money, uh, of interest rates, and we get a, 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 you know, and the bond market suddenly decides that it no longer wants to lend governments money unless they push up interest rates, well, we're going to have the most almighty debt crisis and currency crisis on our hands. And that um, is going to create a lot of anger as well. Governments are currently spending way more money than they receive in tax revenue even and and so another big trend we're going to see is clamping down as they try and raise taxes to to cover their um cover their backsides so that that's another trend that we're going to see uh, as we move forwards and so there's you know there's all sorts of clashes going on i think you know we've seen brexit we saw the scot scottish independence vote we've seen the catalan independence vote um the kurds have just voted uh, in iraq um uh, i think it was a non-binding vote or something i don't really know but i just think we're going to see more and more um jamie bartlett's written a very good book about this but he, he, you know he's he, the the sovereign borders as we now know them are actually a relatively new thing you know in many cases less than 100 years old and he just sees you know, return to the old kind of city states or a modern equivalent of city states and smaller nations. And, you know, the Internet is blurring national borders. Nas you know, national borders are such an irrelevance. Uh, and, and the Internet is just, you know, I'm talking to you. And actually, the, the Irish British border, I just flew back from Cork last week, is actually pretty, pretty easy as borders go. That's because of the long history between the two countries. But, but, you know, I just think borders are going to disappear yeah. and and the way that we're governed is going to change. And this is, but this is a, it's a, you know, change people you look back at history and they go, that was the day the world changed. And that was the day that this happened, but actually it's all gradual and often, but you get these kind of days, which are, you know, days when something spills over, but you know, all the time the glass is filling up with water and then it, then it'll spill over again. And, you know, so th there's a lot of, it, it's a, it's a gradual process, but it's happening. And, um, yeah, multiple trends, multiple yeah. trends. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. One last question for you. And, and I, you know, I know Life After the State, Why We Don't Need Governments is another brilliant book written by you, and I highly recommend it. And they're all available on dominicfrisbee.com. And where else can people, you know, you're on Twitter, etc. Dominic, where else could people Yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dominic Frisbee. And um, I guess that's the best place to go. And then from at Dominic Frisbee, uh, or dominicfrisbee.com and I've got a YouTube channel and a podcast and I write books and I write articles but anytime I've got any content that I want somebody to consume I normally post it on Twitter so that's probably the best place to start at Dominic Frisbee yeah and before I ask the last question also like you speak prolifically and very very well all around the world as well so I highly recommend that for people as well for your next event but the question I was going to ask you was so in a world that's you know facing all this disruption artificial intelligence people are talking about ubi and ai over overtaking a lot of roles and we're going to see roles disrupted like this and then you look at the education system you're going it's not preparing them for this no so, so what it's are your woeful. thoughts what are your thoughts on this well my, i mean my eldest is 16 
we travel as much as possible. He's in the education system. I think really if I'd had a bit more courage, I would have home educated him, but it just wasn't possible in my circumstances at the time. You just got to get out there and get your hands dirty and live life to the full and experiment and try new things and, and, you know, be safe. But unless he does extremely well in his A-levels and goes to one of the top two or three tiers of university, I almost don't see the point of university anymore because you're not special. Like once upon a time, if you went to university, it made you special. But now all kids go to university. And by the time you're 21 or 22, you're actually more special if you haven't been to university and you've got three years, four years solid experience uh, doing something. So, you know, I'm not necessarily going to push them to go to university. Plus, there's all the debt that you get into and students leaving with crippling amounts of debt. And then, you know, debt is the slavery of the, of the free, as the saying goes. You know, they, they, they cripple themselves. And so, you know, the, the way that debt's been introduced into further education is, is insidious. Mm. Especially in the States. It just cripples people. Well, it's terrible everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's worse of all. But people are writing about the, the student debt bubble bursting in the States. I mean, how is that money going to be paid back? It's not. Default is the only way. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, no, I agree with you, man. And, and I'm the same. I'd love to have an option just to disrupt the way my kids are educated. And I suppose we can play a huge role as parents to do that. Yeah, we can. Well, I just encourage mine to, th to think, but you see, mine just did his history O level and he did all right in the end, but there was one of the essays was all about laissez-faire economics uh, in his history, you know, laissez-faire in the 19th century. And he's whole heard me sounding off about why laissez-faire is a good thing. And so he wrote this essay and he argued in favor of laissez-faire. And I was thinking about it and I said, you're going to get, you may as, you're going to get marked down for that because that's not a view that is held by most history teachers. They, they have the opposite um, political view. And he, even if the teacher is open-minded enough to go, actually, uh, you know, that's a good, even though I don't agree with it, that's, that's a good essay. You're still going to be, you know, people mark you up if the things you say confirm their biases. Absolutely. And, and so, it, it, it so i had to sort of say to him look you're gonna have to lie when you next like he's doing economics right i'm just gonna, i'm just gonna tell him lie even if you don't actually think this it's a good discipline to argue something that you don't necessarily agree with it's a good good to be able to know how to make an argument even if you don't agree with it but you're going to have to um you know often it pays to just say what people want you to say even if you don't think it isn't that a terrible thing to tell a kid? I know. It's just say stand up for what you believe. But unfortunately, that's the way. Anyway, well, it, it, I'm slightly confused on, on what to tell him. And he's probably getting know, a confused message. But it's, it's actually, but, and it's the same for But people. in terms of like getting recognition from, a, in an, from an exam board, you just, you know, you just got to tick the boxes. Yeah. It always reminds me of when flew over the cuckoo's nest where he gets lobotomized. <laughs> yeah. To fit in. You know, and you're going, yeah. we, the the world only makes progress thanks for, to people who don't fit in. Yeah, and Yet we're exactly. training them to fit in. It's nuts. Anyway, yeah. man, it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you, Dominic, and I'd love to have you on again, you know, when the next book comes out. Three brilliant books. Let's talk about tax, Bitcoin, life after the state, all available on DominicFrisbee.com. Dominic Frisbee, author and writer with Money Week. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 